I remember uh, getting my first big bike. Anybody remember your first big bike? You know, that was just really, really fun. That was the kind that didn't have the handbrakes. It had the coaster brake and all that. And what was different about this bike is that it was bigger. And I could just barely reach the pedals, but I was excited. This is a wonderful thing. And uh, I went right out there in the road, and I started riding that bike, and I really got some, well, what to me seemed like a lot of speed up. And I headed right for the curb, and I had no idea how to stop this thing. <laughs> so I slammed right into the curb, and now, of course, this was a boy's bike. Do I need to tell the rest of the story? What a wonderful surprise. What a horrible surprise. And that's what's going to happen in this passage. A wonderful surprise, but also a horrible surprise. I want to talk a little bit about some of the structure of it, but first... I'd like to, to read the passage. It's on page 550, if you have one of the church's Bibles from the back there. And this is uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up 
and thrown into the sea does not and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass it will be done for him therefore i tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours and whenever you stand praying forgive if you have done anything against anyone if if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses now if you were looking at this passage carefully uh, you'll notice that actually the action here covers three days. And how much do you think happened in a day? It's obvious Mark here is being very, very selective about the events he picks out of those three days. Uh, this this passage actually has a pretty complex structure. And if you if you're like me, a passage like this raises more questions than it gives answers. As you're reading down through it, every every couple of verses you're going, what? You just really wonder what in the world that was about. There are many explicit and implicit Old Testament references. These were well known to ancient readers, but not necessarily to us. And I'll talk about a few of those. Also, the teaching in this passage is in the action. It's a narrative. It's not so much in the words. You know, it's like in uh, modern uh, filmmaking where they're trying to show you what's happening inside the character, right? What, what's, what he's thinking about. And so if you want a dull film, you just have a voiceover that says, gee, I feel really afraid. <laughs> um, but if you're, if, if you're in a, uh, a better made film, they give you a close up of the figure's face and he goes, Right? And so the, the meaning is in the action. It's, it's very similar in effect to a play. Oh, only Jesus was doing this live right there in front of everybody. It was really happening. It wasn't just a play. Now there's one thing about the structure of this passage that you needed to notice. When he does his thing in the temple, did you notice that it was bookended by two parts of another story? Did you notice there was a part of a story that came before the business in the temple? And then there was the temple, and then he finished that, that story. That's the story of the fig tree. He purposefully broke it into two parts. Now, it happened on two days, but either that's awfully convenient or Mark is trying to make a point. I think he was trying to make a point. This is probably the most important literary device in the passage. Why does he bookend these seemingly unrelated story, this, this passage about the temple with the fig tree getting cursed and the fig tree withering? If you don't understand what Mark is doing by this arrangement of his material, you will almost certainly understand him. And this is one of those passages where the parallel accounts of the triumphal entry in the other Gospels don't help us all that much. Sorry. But in any case, the main point is this. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior King, but Jesus is not who they expect him to be. And maybe we need to consider this morning, maybe if Jesus is not who we expect him to be. 
So in with the old, out with the new, the unexpected king enters in triumph. And that's Roman numeral one on your outline. So here's the problem. Everybody is excited about the miracles that Jesus does. He has created this huge following. The trouble is they don't understand really what he's come to do. They don't understand what it is that he's trying to make happen. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and what have the authorities decided to do about this charismatic figure that is just lighting the countryside from end to end? I mean, this guy has great crowds following him around. All he's got to do is let him know where he's going to be, and there's an instant five or thousand or so ready to hear. This is uh, this is quite an event. What have the authorities decided to do about this Jesus? This is what they've decided to do. What did that mean? It means they ignored him. Yeah, let's just cut him. Cut him right out. We'll ignore him and he'll go away and leave us alone. Sorry, that's probably not going to work with Jesus. Do you notice the, the tremendous celebration the authorities had laid on to welcome Jesus to Jerusalem? So, all right, this is the king of the universe, and they don't even do nothing. He's got to improvise his own triumphal entry. Of course, he's uh, tricky about how he does it. And he uh, he remembers, naturally, Zechariah 9, verse 9, about your king will enter on a donkey and all that stuff. So he improvises this business with the cult. Now, everybody back then knows Zechariah 9, verse 9. That's not a surprise to them. So they see Jesus doing this thing with this donkey. They see all of this going on. And how do they respond? How do the people respond? They're like, whoa, this is this charismatic figure that heals people. This is guy who performs miracles. He, he's obviously it. See, he's riding on a donkey. He is saying he is the king. Okay? We, we think, okay, Jesus just being all humble, riding on a donkey and all. Okay, well, he was very humble. And the verse actually points that out. Here comes your king, humble, riding on a donkey. Okay, so they get that. But the thing that they are thinking is, whoa, this is the king. So how do we know that that's what they're thinking? Because they respond by quoting from Psalm 118. And that was that passage that Adam read this morning. Because of the, the translation from the languages and stuff, uh, it doesn't come through quite quite like um, like we'd like, but it is Psalm 118, the part that Adam was reading, and this is what they were shouting, Hosanna is Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Okay. The authorities are ignoring him. The crowd is calling him the successor to King David. Little, get some dynamic tension there. A little political tension. A little social strife going on. Yeah, by all means. Okay. So these people are excited about this. To them, this phrase, Hosanna in the highest, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, 
is a well-known expression that they are used to chanting or singing one or the other as they come into Jerusalem for the Passover. So they are now singing it because in their minds it's being fulfilled right before them. Okay, now how does this go? You guys used to any of this kind of stuff? Say if in our modern day somebody stands up like me and says, we are. We are. All right, all right. Now, how many of you have ever been over there and heard that done? Can you hear it in the stadium? Can they hear it on the field? How about in the parking lots? Can they hear it in the next county? I have no idea. Okay, this is what's happening at the triumphal entry. This crowd is shouting at the top of their lungs. They are marching. It's the people that come behind him and the people that go in for him. They are all shouting this. Now, I don't know whether if the authorities, safe in their little inner rooms, actually heard this. It doesn't say. But I have no doubt that they heard about it real quick. This was a major event. And yet, Jesus had to had to uh, improvise. It wasn't planned out. They had ignored him. And he had to improvise this, this whole event. The thing to notice here is though this is the biggest thing that's happened in Jerusalem in a long, long time, the complete absence of the leader, the complete absence of the leaders, they, they are trying to ignore him and maybe he'll go away. So Jesus acts out, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is claiming to be king by doing this. The apostles and the crowd respond by acting out other passages, and I'm not going to take the time this morning, but if you'd like to, to look in a Bible that gives good cross-references, what you'll find is that all of the actions that took place that Mark mentions in this passage are at least an allusion to something that happened in the Old Testament. Every, every single one of them. I mean, this is like, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there is nothing about this that doesn't say royalty. It's like you're watching the crowning of the next uh, uh, king of England, if and when that ever happens. And and they put this big robe on him. And he goes and he sits in this big chair. And everything is carefully scripted out. And everything has meaning in terms of this. And that's what's happening at, in this event. The whole business with the leafy branches, with the robes, with all that stuff. It's all in the Old Testament. But the most direct one, the most direct allusion here, or, or quote actually, is Psalm 118.25. And that's where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, it's not quite so clear that because of the, the, the translation from... We have an English translation of the Greek here. You know, for, for them back in those days, it was originally written in Hebrew. They're probably speaking Aramaic. It gets awkward. So it doesn't look like a direct quote, but it actually is by the time you go through the different translations. They would have seen Jesus acting out this passage 
and gotten the point immediately, he is king. They would have heard it all over town. We are Penn State. Only it's Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is Lord. Hosanna in the high. That, that kind of thing. Now, all of this is very powerful. Jesus is enacting the role of the Messiah, the King of Israel, and, and the crowd is giving him that role by acclamation. It's quite probable that the shouts of the crowd echoed all across Jerusalem. So, the leaders of the, of the, of the time uh, felt like they had a problem before. Now they really have a problem. Okay, so... This is in with the new. The unexpected king enters in triumph. Now, not only is there an in with the new aspect of this passage, there is an out with the old aspect as well. And that starts out with him cursing the fig tree. The unexpected fig king curses the fig tree. On the following day, they came from Bethany. He was hungry and seeing in the distance, a fig tree and leaf, he went, if he could find anything on it. He came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, Make, may no one ever eat from you again, and his disciples heard. Okay, there's just a whole, everything this passage says leaves you scratching your head, right? Well, let's start at the, at the end, and his disciples heard it. He did this so they would hear it. This was not something he was just grumbling, fig tree, you know. He said it so they would hear it. Jesus knew it was not the season for figs. What do you think, he's dumb? This is to make a point. The unexpected king curses the fig. This introduces the whole next section with the temple. This cursing sets up how we are to understand what Jesus will do in the next scene at the temple. What does Jesus here do here? He curses a fig tree for not bearing fruit, even though it's not in its nature to bear fruit at this time. It's out of season. Okay? This king can have expectations that are beyond what's natural. Okay, that's that's point A in your outline there. This unexpected king uses this to expose that the temple has no Lord. So Jesus curses the fig tree on the way in. I, I have no doubt that everybody who was with him, his disciples who heard this, are wondering about this the whole next day. Why did he do this? All the miracles he's done make sense at some level. This is just, did he just get bummed? Is he just having a bad day? <laughs> just think about that. A God who controls all the power of the universe, holding it in his hands, has a bad day. I don't want to be there. <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere close. But there's nowhere to run. Okay, the next, so they're thinking about this. The next thing is that the next day they go, excuse me, on the same day that he curses the fig tree, which is the second day in the scene here, they go in the temple. Jesus drives out. Who does he drive out? The buyers and the sellers. Okay? So, in this temple, 
you have to you have to offer sacrifice, and they have to be inspected by the priest before you can offer it. Because you can't be offering second-class stuff. It's got to be first-class stuff, right? So they got a deal for you. They have pre-inspected merchandise. You just buy one, and there you go. You got it. And take care of it, right? Everybody's happy. Convenient system. Just like going to Walmart, you know? You ran out of cereal, you go to Walmart, you get some cereal. Now, if Jesus goes into Walmart and he drives out the buyers and the sellers, who's left in the store? (laughs) I don't know, maybe the security guards? (laughs) But he's going into the temple, he's driving out the buyers and the sellers. It's like he doesn't think there are any good guys around. He overturns the tables and the chairs. Okay, this is a real mess. Say we got here to have church, and just as Jeff is trying to start us singing, somebody stands up and throws all the chairs over. What's going to happen to our worship service? Well, we're just going to ignore it and keep going, right? Not likely. This disrupts everything. And he stops anybody from carrying anything. Okay, how do you carry a sacrifice up to the altar? How do you do the thing with the incense? He's not letting anybody carry anything. (laughs) This is crazy. The whole temple service is wrong. You know why it's wrong? It's because it's men trying to gain God's approval. And that's as absolutely useless as, as a fig tree out of season. If you want figs and it's not the season for the tree to bear figs, that tree is useless. This is the point here. He's drawing a, a direct connection here. Everything happening in that temple is useless. Jesus explains by quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7 and Jeremiah 7 verse 11 showing that they are just the same of their forefathers whom the prophets had denounced. And Jesus says here, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, this is going to immediately remind them of what the prophets said and why they said it. This this is the reason that ancient Israel and Judah were hauled off into captivity. He's telling them, you are not the good guys. You are the bad guys. I don't know about you. How do you think the crowd responded to that thought? Yeah. Their approach to God through this temple was no better than ancient Israel's approach, which God judged by sending them into exile. The problem is their nature is wrong, and it will take a miracle to save them. Their problem is that they are trying to get godly fruit out of a fig tree out of season. It simply won't work. So yikes, what are they going to do? Here's this tremendously popular, charismatic leader coming into town, starting his own parade. Well, their answer is they got to destroy Jesus. See that? And the chief priests and scribes heard it, 
and was seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That's what they're going to do. They don't like the message, so they're going to shoot the messenger. Good response, right? This is not smart at all. But remember that we are often just as stupid as they are. Anytime we choose to do the wrong thing, basically shake our fist in God's hand, we are acting just as stupidly. So Jesus gives the answer in this next section, in the closing bookend, which is where he talks about where they finish up the part about the withered fig tree. And in verse 20, it says, And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Shocker. And Jesus' answer is, have faith in God. Is that, a, is that an answer or not? It's not an answer about why did the fig tree get withered. He is Lord of the universe. He said, may no fruit come from you again. That fig tree was beating all speed records to to wither. (laughs) That's not the question. The question is, how is this all related? The answer is not in the strength of your belief. The answer is in who your faith is in. What he's saying is entrust yourself to God. Entrust your whole being to God. This is not about is your faith strong enough. This is not about have you got all the points of your doctrinal statement in unbeaten order. It's a good thing, but that's not what this is about. What does he say here? Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. How many of you have tried to change your hearts? Anybody here tried to change your hearts? Anybody find yourself just really tempted to do the wrong thing and you sit yourself down and you give yourself a real stern lecture, right? You are not going to do this. I'm going to take you out and thrash you if you do this again. And what happens in your heart? I want it, I want it, I want it. You know, I it's been a long time since I've been a two-year-old. <laughs> Probably a lot longer than most of you. But if you strip away all my veneer and get down to what's deep down right inside of my heart, what I find in my heart is I want what I want when I want it. Anybody sympathize with that? Anybody want what you want when you want it? That is the real problem. How do you change a human heart? That is the mountain that has to be cast into the sea. That is the problem. You know, we don't really need to throw mountains into the sea. I mean, what? first of all, mountains are pretty, you know, and I would hate to do that. And second is, can you imagine what's going to happen to the splash when it goes in the ocean? You're going to kill thousands of people. We really don't need mountains thrown into the sea. 
What we do need is our hearts changed from this hardened, self-reliant rebellion against God that we all keep so carefully hidden down inside to to having a heart of faith in God. And what he is saying is that if you entrust yourself to God, that he will deliver you from this rebellion that's part of it. How impossible is it to throw a mountain into the sea with simply your voice? Well, that's pretty impossible. I knew a guy once that said that he stopped the gypsy moth plague on Mount Nittany by casting him out. And I'm looking at Mount Nittany, and it looks like the leaves are all gone. And I'm looking at him thinking, you need glasses. That's not even casting a mountain. That's just getting rid of some caterpillars. It's pretty impossible, but God can indeed do that. He can throw the mountain into the ocean. If we call on us to call on him to save us through his son, Jesus, he will surely do just that. He will give you whatever you ask for. If you ask him, he will make it yours. As the very nature is changed, it will be seen in their actions. They will be able to forgive um, those who have offended them as they become more and more like God. And you can follow this theme up in the New Testament. I'll give you this passage as homework. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And that's actually where Paul talks about putting off what is old and putting on what is new. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here as well. But I'm going to tell you another story. You guys like stories, don't you? I heard this story um, from a fellow named Doug Benjamin. This was uh, back in the late 60s, and there was this little thing going on at the time uh, called the Vietnam War. And he had been a captain in the Marines and was just back. And I was at a small dinner with him and a few other people. And we were just asking him questions about how it had gone for him over there in Vietnam. And uh, I had no idea that what we were really asking him. Um, but he he told us how he had a comp- his company of Marines, and they were on the top of this hill. And they were supposed to be like a listening post to, to look out for um, the bad guys. And, um, you know, their heavy armor armament was a, a handheld machine gun. You know, that's kind of heavy armament. And if they needed to blow things up, they threw hand grenades. So they're Marines. They feel like they're tough guys. And they were up on top of this hill that actually overlooked the North Vietnamese border when the Tet Offensive started. This was no longer the Viet Cong. This was the North Vietnamese Army. They sent an armored division. He's got 150 guys with guns, right? They've got a 1,000 tanks. What did he do? What would you do? <laughs> You're on the radio. Help! We got a lot. You got, you got. And, of course, what he heard at that point is they're attacking all through the country, we, we cannot, we do not have the transport. We cannot come and get you. We will send what we got. 
They sent one cargo plane. Couldn't even land. And he was telling me, he said, that, that sounds scary, doesn't it? But you have to understand that this was a specially modified cargo plane. They called it Puff the Magic Dragon. And it had, it was the reason they used the cargo plane so it could carry all the ammunition it needed. Uh, the fighters couldn't carry enough. And it, it had, uh, three of these, uh, miniguns that they use, 6,000 rounds a minute. <laughs> Calculate that, right? And they have, they have three of them. And the way they aim the thing is the pilot sits in his seat and he puts the wingtip on whatever he doesn't like. And then he presses the button. Uh, destroys a, a acre of jungle a minute. Penetrates tanks. So Puff the Magic Dragon hovered over their position all night long, throwing out flares. And I asked Doug, I said, well, what did you guys do? And he said, I set the guard and went to sleep. And he woke up in the morning, and they were all gone. No sign that they had ever been there. My point is this. It wasn't Doug's faith that got them through. What got them through? It was the power of this weapon flying around in the sky that got them through. He cast himself, because he didn't have any choice, right? <laughs> he cast himself on the power of this weapon. And that got him through. That's our situation. What we have been called upon to do, and Jesus himself said it, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What, what kind of a score is perfect? Yeah. <laughs> what chance have any of us got of meeting that standard? And what Jesus is saying is that if we cast ourselves on him, put ourselves, put our hope in him and who he is, that he will deliver us. Why couldn't Jesus have just have been the Messiah that they wanted? Wouldn't that have made things easier? If he had done that, it would have left them unchanged. The problem would still be we're all trying to prove how good we are. It would have left them as rebels against the holy God. It would have left the poison inside of them that would inevitably rot them from the inside out. And just like what these people back then needed to do was to turn from their idols to worship a living and holy God, to commit themselves wholly to him. That is what we need to do today. Every day we need to repent and put our whole trust and our whole confidence in a holy God who is willing to sacrifice his son that we could live. And as the scriptures say, the reason Jesus rose from the dead was so that we would know that that sacrifice was accepted and that we can have confidence that this thing is really going to work.